Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program where we take a diverse look at cars and transport. I'm David Brown, and in this program we look at news stories, including the end of the road for a bold plan to save the Holden plant in Adelaide. The Commodore dominates at the moment the large car market in Australia, but what about the Peugeot 508? It hardly troubles the scorer in sales, but it does have some French charm. We also get Brian Smith's opinion on some of the latest Subarus, and in our panel discussion with Brian and Errol Smith, we take a light-hearted look at stories, including an overturning bigger cheese truck leads to some appalling puns, and rickshaws go all high-tech and sexy design. Have a question or a comment? Send it to overdrive at drivenmedia.com.au. Now, to start the program... Let's have the news. A possible rescue plan for Holden's factory site in Elizabeth in South Australia has come to naught. A Belgian entrepreneur, Guido de Mary, had hoped to acquire the plant and the rights to General Motors' rear-wheel drive platform which underpins the Holden Commodore and a handful of derivative models. However, after a round of negotiations between GM and de Mary's company, it appears both parties have determined that there was no viable business case in saving the Holden plant. The reasons include a lack of scale, high production costs and with other local manufacturers Ford and Toyota also leaving the market, local suppliers would struggle to maintain their services. It used to be said that the one item that is common to all new cars was the tyre valve cap. Now Mercedes is finding that they have a market advantage with their new S-Class by offering four variations of tyre caps as well as carbon fibre trim and heated or cooled cup holders and the car makers' robots simply can't keep up. So this has led to a revival of the assembly line worker rather than just robots. With the new S-Class, robots can't deal with the degree of individualisation and the many variants that are part of this modern luxury car. The Nissan Leaf is an all-electric car that was meant to show what future motoring could be all about, but it has fallen foul, to some degree, to a more modern development. Nissan had produced an app called Nissan Connect EV, which allowed you to do things like check the state of the battery and see the estimated driving range. But now they have disabled the app because it was found that hackers could remotely control some of the Leaf's in-car systems. Although the hack was only successful on a non-moving car, the hacker could still be able to see the owner's username, which could potentially reveal their identity. Daimler has ruled out investing in battery cell production for electric cars with other German premium brands for at least another few years, citing a massive overcapacity in the market that has turned cells into a commodity. Audi had expressed interest last September in pooling resources to produce cells in Germany, and Daimler was open to the idea. But with Tesla building a huge factory to manufacture batteries, and German car makers including BMW and Audi not selling a lot of electric cars, Mercedes have cooled on the idea of producing German batteries. Another hesitation might be that building one type of battery might be overtaken by a new type of battery in the future. In the TV series The Minder, 
Arthur Daly was always keen on getting a great deal. But according to Auto Trader's New Market Report, the art of haggling over the price of a car in the UK seems to be on the decline, with 56% of car buyers who bought a car in the last six months claiming to have paid the asking price, or more if you include extras. Over a quarter of women claim they would rather go to the dentist than buy or sell a car, with more women even claiming to be more confident in buying a house than purchasing a new vehicle. In-car technology like infotainment and navigation systems continue to have the biggest negative impact on dependability, according to the latest J.D. Power dependability study in the United States. This is a trend that has been seen at least since 2011, when Ford's initial quality scores tumbled because of its dodgy My Ford Touch and Sync systems. Issues with audio, communication, entertainment and navigation technology accounted for 20% of all problems reported by participants. The 2016 study focused on the experience of vehicle owners with their cars that were bought new three years ago. Year 3 is an interesting one for vehicles. They're no longer considered new, but they're too young to experience the serious issues that can affect older vehicles. Also, many are still covered by warranties, which means that owners are more likely to have the problems fixed. For the fifth year in a row, Lexus was tops in power's dependability rankings. And finally, Toyota recently unveiled a new colour scheme for their iconic Prius. But what's a little different is that it is lime green, and not very pretty. But aesthetics are not the main aim. The paint is actually called Thermotect Lime Green, and it helps keep the hybrid car cool. The new colour option improves the paint on a molecular level by removing the black carbon particles and replacing them with reflective flecks of titanium oxide. Toyota claims its Thermotect paint is so effective that it outperformed a car donning purely white paint. Between the bright lime green colour and swapped out particles, this new coating should significantly increase the vehicle's solar reflectivity. This in turn means the car will absorb less solar energy and get hot less often, making the car more energy efficient. That has been the news. The Peugeot 508 is classed as a large car under $70,000 in the Australian market, which puts it in with Commodores, Falcons and Orions, and not much else really, Hyundai Genesis and the Skoda Superb, which are two nice cars. Last year, this segment of the market declined in sales by about 8%. Interestingly, there are more cars, 11 in total, in the luxury above $70,000 segment for large cars although they don't sell anything like the Commodore. Last year, their market declined by about 4%. Now, the Peugeot, Hyundai and Skoda hardly bother the scorer in terms of sales. Last year, Peugeot sold just 341 508 cars, which was 0.9% of the market. Holden totally dominated the segment, selling 27,700 Commodores, for 71% of this market segment. But Peugeot calls their 508 an executive sedan. 
Is it more than a hack model? Independent motoring writer Brent Davidson and I have been driving some of the 508 Peugeots and he joins me on the line to discuss them. Brent, is this a medium or is it a large car? David, can we go with it's a giant economy size car? No, seriously, look, it's, it's, it's a fraction of just under 4.8 metres long. So I'm, I'm going to go with it. it's a big car and leave it at that. But the funny thing is it doesn't have a big car presence. It looks quite petite, quite delicate in, in its own sweet way, which is kind of a, has this little, little bit of a French thing about it, doesn't it? doesn't look like a microcar by any sense, but it doesn't look like a lumbering big uh, sedan. Got a bit of style to it, and uh, things I, th- I think looks quite good. Let's just cover a few of the things. Uh, it comes in three models? Yes, it does. Um, essentially, uh, three, three engine uh, ranges too. We have the active Allure and GT, and when you come down to the engines, you get a 1.6-litre turbocharged petrol engine, a 2-litre turbo diesel, and a 2.2 litre turbo diesel and and the funny thing is we've we've kind of gone full circle or or half circle in fact because not that many years ago when you wanted power and performance you went for the um, petrol engine now the two turbocharged engines available are far more powerful and have way more torque output than the the 1.6 turbocharged petrol engine it's it's all a bit um yeah a bit different well, of course, the GT, as you say, has a diesel engine. That's uh, a little different from what it's been in the past. You can also get a station wagon. Now, let's talk about the price of them. Start at about 37000 plus on-roads. You've got to add uh, about uh, 10 to 12% for on-roads. In fact, to start at the active with the petrol engine, it's about $41,500 and goes up to, for the GT, in the sedan goes up to about 63200 that's to get it to drive away price uh, 63000 or so dollars at about 3 grand for the station wagon but i must admit just at the moment at the time of broadcasting they do have the a $5000 bonus on everything but the GT so 66 and a half for the top of range GT station wagon that's not too bad, I guess. I got about 7.9 litres per hundred in going around in the GT, which is more a grand touring rather than that some people think that means super sports car. Yeah, but 7.9 litres per hundred, David. I, I have a, a, a small um, Asian uh, hatchback in my garage, which I'm, I'm, I can really say, yeah, look at me, I'm getting 7.2. And yet here we are in a diesel, in you know, like a one point, a two point two-litre turbo diesel with 150 kilowatts and 450 newton metres, and, um, and, and, and it's, it's achieving um, you know, small hatchback fuel economy numbers and, and probably weighs close to 1.6 tonnes. I think that's pretty good. It, it, the petrol tanks seem to go down the gauge rather quickly, but uh, when then I went touring and it, and it wasn't too bad. So all in all, yeah, I think if you use it reasonably, it's a good way to go. Inside, the GT had leather seats with red stitching. It didn't look too bad. The Peugeots, I, I believe that uh, the French know how to put the most comfortable seats in the world in cars, and, and seats in Peugeots are among my favourites. But, but Peugeot seems to have the knack of making a car that you instantly feel comfortable with. That's a good summation, Brent. It's always lovely to talk to you. Thank you very much for your time. 
David, it's always my pleasure. Brent Davidson, the independent motoring journalist who's giving us his opinion on French cars in general, but the Peugeot 508 in particular. Overdrive. For more information and past programs, go to drivenmedia.com.au. Well, last week, Subaru said to Overdrive they'd like us to come and have a look at a few of the vehicles that they have on their fleet and maybe announce a thing or two. Of course, uh, who else to send but a uh, a Subaru tragic of years past, but perhaps not now, but Brian Smith. G'day, David. How are you, Brian? Very, very good. Okay. Now, uh, there was, in fact, an announcement while you were down there. What was that? Yes, well, it, it was um, it came out of really nowhere um, on the dinner on the, on the uh, first evening that... Uh, uh, Subaru is returning to the rally scene. So, of course, uh, they haven't been in um, world or Australian rallying for 10 years. Um, and in, I think in the previous 10 years, they basically dominated the competition. Well, they've announced, they announced that they would return to rallying this year with uh, a, a new car, a, a production car and a new driver. Is that rallying, do we know whether it's the World Championship or is it local? It's Australian, Australian Rally Championships. As you say, they did well. They won it 10 years in a row, I think. The Australian Rally Championship, uh, uh, maybe a few different drivers, uh, but Subarus themselves. Now, they haven't really publicised it much at all, but uh, Molly Taylor, of course, will be the driver. She is uh, the daughter of Coral Taylor, who was the navigator and won the Australian Rally Championship as a co-driver and navigator on four occasions, I think, Neil Bates being the driver. She's also a member of the board of the NRMA, the New South Wales Motoring Club. Uh, That's Coral. And uh, the winner of the Peter Brock medal, her contributions to motorsport. Okay. A very, very clever move on Subaru's part. They're coming back into the sport, but they're coming back with a fantastic new driver, a, a, a very good driver who has a lot of promise, but but who is a woman. So they're now searching for the co-driver, but uh, it's fantastic news. So it was a, it was an unusual um, two days because uh, Subaru didn't really have a new vehicle to launch. They uh, they had a couple of sort of I guess midlife updates for some of the cars, significant updates. Um, their suspension uh, is really, really sorted now. So suspension and steering changes that they wanted to, to demonstrate and, and things like, you know, the steering across the board uh, changed from a ratio of 15 to 1 to 14 to 1, stuff like this. But on the road, the cars are fantastic. We drove the Liberty, the um, Outback and the Forester. I managed to drive the base model Forester. I like to, to look at a base model car. And look, I tell you what, the Liberty is a very, very comfortable cruising car. The Outback is a very safe, fantastic feeling car for for dirt roads. We did a lot of driving around the Mount Gambier area in South Australia, which has some of the most wonderful dirt roads you could hope for. They're they're made from limestone. They're incredibly smooth. And so you can easily drive 100 kilometres an hour on these um, these dirt roads without feeling any concerns at all. They're also demonstrating a few high-tech elements, uh, David, that they have um, a a few sort of high-tech lane sort of notification things that keep track of um, where your car is positioned on the road. 
I like the Outback. It is not a big SUV, yet it's like got a bit of a higher suspension and it's a station wagon. It really is, to my mind, a nice balance without going into a lumbering big utility derivative type SUV model. A lot of models are getting better, but I just think uh, the Subarus had that foot in the in the door for a long time. Yeah, It also is a case where they've always had all-wheel drive, but a lot of companies, and when I was down in Tasmania with Hyundai, they talk a lot about being designed for Australian conditions and set up well. I think there's a really strong pressure now for producing cars with good touring-type suspension so that, that handles and, and can travel distances comfortably on roads that may not be pristine tar. Mm. You've had a few Subarus in your time, haven't yes, you? Yes, yeah. We um, I did a bit of rallying in a very early Subaru four-wheel drive, had the Subaru Forester. Yeah, look, I'm I'm a fan of the car. I think they um, there was a, quite a substantial period where they made no progress in, in some of their cars. I, when I went to replace uh, my current Forester, the, the previous Forester that I had, um, for, which I'd held for 10 years, I found that basically the new model was no better and in many ways worse than the existing model. still had four-speed automatic, you know, it had no gizmos inside the gadgets that really make your life easier, like revision cameras and things like that. Now, they've sorted a lot of that stuff out. Uh, the cars are, are pretty well uh, equipped. Some Subaru, some interesting times. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks, David. And that's Brian Smith, and he was talking about just savouring some of the latest developments in some of the Subaru cars that are on the market in Australia now. Overdrive. If you have a question, suggestion or comment, send an email to overdrive at drivenmedia.com.au. And the last part of our program is, of course, talking some quirky news stories about subjects like motoring and transport. Joining me once again on the line is Errol Smith. G'day, Errol. G'day, David. And Brian Smith. G'day, Brian. G'day, David. Errol, you're beginning with an appalling pun. Well, David, we are occasionally accused of covering cheesy stories, uh, but here's one that's extra bitey. A truck carrying 20 tonnes of cheese blocks overturned on the Princess Highway on the New South Wales south coast. The tasty incident blocked traffic in both directions, but was not so gouda for the driver, who had to be swissed off to hospital to check on his blue veins. <laughs> Apparently, there was debris everywhere, but rather than leaving it for the local mice to enjoy, the fresh dairy mess had to be dumped into a truck and weighed for insurance purposes. <laughs> That's a year's worth of puns right there. <laughs> yes, I'm just, I'm just getting them out of the way now so I can move on. <laughs> I always thought Feta was a small Italian city car with two cylinders. <laughs> I wonder if they needed to use a road grater to um, to clear it away. In Spain, there's a, a cheese called the Majorio. I always thought that's a big four-wheel drive, isn't it? Oh, you know, yeah. The Majorio. In the US, they have Cougar Gold, which sounds like a women's sports car to me. Americas make cheese like they make cars, bland, mass-produced and unusual colours. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yes, a, br a bright yellow that doesn't exist in nature. Yes, it doesn't, yes that's right. <laughs> Is that appalling joke from QI where how do you encourage a bear to come to you? What do you say to it? And the answer is camembert. Camembert. All right, enough of that, gentlemen. As you say, Brian, I think that might be enough puns to last us for quite a deal of time. Brian, it's a, a, a transport planning issue that I really want to get into here. And Errol, your thoughts on that would be appreciated as well. Thailand has, of course, the tuk-tuk. Indonesia has the bakat. Vietnam, I think it's called the cyclo. But, of course, in India and Bangladesh, they have the famous rickshaw. Now, the rickshaw was invented in the 1860s in Japan. But has it ever come into the 21st century? Not really. Well, now the Asian Development Bank hopes to haul these paratransit vehicles into the modern age. They're going to build one, which is a very modern-looking device. Gentlemen, you've uh, seen pictures of it. Do you think it has some potential? Yeah, David, I find it quite intriguing. The greatest um, uh, sort of advances here are its um, structural weight. So... Um, it you know, cars and bicycles and, and, you know, a rickshaw in a sense, a blend in many ways of a car and a motorbike and a bicycle and a motorbike. In many ways, um, cars and bikes have, have both sort of a, a benefited from advances in um, new materials. So to get very light, very strong structures and it doesn't seem to have passed on to the rickshaw. So so this new sort of Asian Development Bank version is um, is using some of those more modern materials to really reduce the weight. Uh, which should make it a whole lot more efficient. Now, it's really important that forms of transport like this are still available, still effective uh, in Asian cities particularly. Ho Chi Minh cities decided that uh, they wanted to to uh, get rid of motorbikes and, and um, you know, move to more cars, and they're suffering incredible traffic congestion because of it, because the the space that the cars take up. So, yeah, I think it's fantastic to see, and it's uh, it's long overdue. It's like a little half-moon-shaped uh, roof line over it. Mm. A person sits in the back and actually has a digital screen in front of them. It's electric-powered, I think, but uh, is there a possibility that you could pedal it a bit and make it uh, go better you know add to the power yeah yeah yeah, should, yeah they've, they've designed it to be um sort of either way so there's a there's a pedal only version or there's sort of a, an electric assisted one and uh we, t we often talk about efficiency when it comes to engines but they're, they're actually talking about efficiency for the rider if his vehicle's lighter it means he can you know do more kilometers and carry more more passengers yeah. or cargo and and get from a to b quicker and make a bit more money so it's, it's a win-win all round a perfect uh, application for you know sort of electric bike technology isn't it now the issue we've talked about is the p potential revolution in local trips where you can do short trips and the, now we've talked about you can get scooters you can get uh, monocycle sorts of things that are like a segway but only just uh, two wheels on the ground and a platform uh, but this one actually has a roof over it and it's got no sides on it yet you could have sides on it you could just roll them down couldn't you yeah roll them down you could protect from the rain yes you could yes yeah it's all those little those little bit little luxuries that they're adding but it's still a very simple design and yet it sort of a, has a sci-fi futuristic look to it. I did, I did notice they had an interesting design issue. Of course, the rider is sort of has to be up high so he can pedal, but the passenger is seated lower to the ground. And they realised that um, most passengers wound up looking at basically the bum crack of the rider. <laughs> um, so uh, they Next had to put the screen... screen. 
a screen in the way. Um, so it does does seem like a convenient excuse to shove advertising in someone's face. They call it the plumber's screen. Yes. <laughs> the other thing is, if it's electric power, and might we ultimately get to them where, where they're autonomous. And so I will be able to call one up. It'll come to my thing. I'll ride it to the bus stop and then leave it to go somewhere else. So I'll add my energy to it. So it's, it's a good... Uh, renewable energy sort of, well, uh, certainly energy efficient device. It also gets me there. It's got a covering on it so I can still use it if it rains. And maybe then it could then go off and find someone else. Mm. Yeah, it's a great idea. Yes, the, the only issue is, David, is that you, you you plug your phone into the convenient charger in the back, but it actually drains your phone to run the bike. <laughs> That's a good idea. I want to talk about this local trip just a little further. Volvo have got what they call their RAW, Robot-Based Autonomous Refuge Handling Project. Not quite raw, but that, that that's pretty good. Now, the, the pr- principle of this is, Brian, you know, when designing uh, uh, local um, housing areas, quite often you have to leave quite a space to get things in like garbage trucks. Mm, they tend to drive the design in, in many places. Now, of course, you've still got to get delivery vans as well. I, I understand that. But a big garbage truck and loading it, what a Volvo have developed is this small device that uh, can go around, can find a bin that needs emptying and maybe transport it back to a more central area and empty it off. And so we might well be able to have local communities that are not as dominated by as wider roads because we have not only small autonomous cars but small autonomous vehicles like a refuge collector or even a delivery van, which... If it's autonomous, then you don't have to design it to do 150 kilometres an hour to have all the road safety to protect the driver because it doesn't have a driver, and it might just be able to deliver parcels to you. Yeah, yeah as long yeah. as they don't fly. I don't want to have flying garbage cans going around <laughs> my area. As long as it's on the road, I'm, I'm happy. As long as it's a, a, a sort of robot that can sort of hurl your bin lead across the road and... <laughs> put it back upside down. The good thing is it doesn't demand a case of beer at Christmas time. <laughs> uh, gentlemen, uh, enough of this. Thank you once again for your time. Bye, no, David. That's Errol Smith and Brian Smith. And we were talking some unusual stories to do with motoring and transport. And there is more of this quirky news segment on our website at www.drivenmedia.com.au or podcast overdrive from iTunes or your favourite podcast service. And uh, some of the stories we discuss in more detail include a motoring museum that looks at the history of some road safety devices with a twist of humour. And we talk about car companies becoming car partners in famous movies. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Errol Smith, Brian Smith, Brent Davidson and Paul Just for their great help during the program. Overdrive can be heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.